Cool. Um, y'all, well, welcome. Uh, welcome to REF. My name is Simon Stokes, and if uh, I've never met you, I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, a little heads up for the next few weeks. Um, Katie and I are having a baby here sometime this week. Um, yeah, big deal. It's either coming in the next couple of days naturally or next Wednesday we're going to induce. Um, so, all that being said, I won't be preaching at next week's RUF. And I won't be preaching the one after that either. But I have uh, my friend Daniel coming to preach this next RUF. Uh, he's the former campus minister here at UNC. He's at Christ Central Church now in downtown Durham. Uh, so he gets UNC. He gets uh, who we are. Uh, but we also have Crawford, Stephen, or my counterpart at Duke. So he doesn't get UNC. <laughs> He doesn't get who we are, but he is an RUF campus minister, so that's something. Um, but they're, got, they're both seriously going to be great, uh, and they'll come in and fill in some things. And so I just want to give you a heads up that, uh, yes, we're aware that we're having a baby, and yes, there's a plan um, for that in place. <laughs> but if you could, uh, we would ask for safe prayers for delivery for Katie and for this little uh, sweet nugget that's coming along as well. <laughs> so we call our kids. <laughs> anyway. Let's dive in here. Um, there was a guy who was a Roman Catholic priest probably uh, 25, 30 years ago by the name of Henry Nowen, and he, he wrote a book uh, where he talked about his experience of getting older. And he said that as he got older, he found that his prayer life was actually getting a lot worse. That even though he's a Roman Catholic priest, um, even though he's kind of a professional ministry person, and by almost every measurable, like he was crushing it in his field. He was... He had started his career teaching at Notre Dame, uh, then he taught at Yale, and finally as he's kind of going through this crisis, he's actually teaching at a school that you may have heard of called Harvard? It's in Boston? I don't know. He, he was one of those people that both like liberals and conservatives read and respected, but as he got older, he had this nagging question, which is, he could not get rid of, which is this, was, am I getting closer to Jesus, or do I feel like I'm getting farther away from him? So he goes through this crisis and he decides to leave his teaching position at Harvard so he can become a caretaker in a rural boarding house for severely mentally handicapped men. All the relationships, all the connections, the reputation that he'd literally worked a lifetime to build just flushed down the toilet. Like it meant nothing there. He'd spent 20 years teaching at Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard. None of his books, none of his lectures mattered to people who could not read. None of them had ever even been to school, so they didn't even know that the schools that he taught at were that prestigious. In many ways, this was kind of the death of that phase of his career, because the part of him that could do things, that could show things, that could build things, prove things, basically the most relevant part of who he was just did not matter in this place. And all that was left of him, he said, was just the sense of his unadorned self, just the man that he was, weak and vulnerable, and that all he had to offer to these men was Jesus and the willingness to love them and be loved by them in return. And there were people that thought that he had failed. There were people that thought he'd burned out. But no one really looked at this as the turning point in his spiritual life. And you can look back on kind of the books that he wrote over his career, and a lot of the stuff that people still read came out of this time period. Why is that? Because as we've gone through this kind of series this semester in encountering Jesus, I think that as we 
as we meet him and start to deal with him, as you start to wrestle with who he is, whether he's a Christian or someone who's not yet a Christian, that you see that the prestige and position that we want do not matter as much as being close and dependent upon God. Our temptation is to think that spiritual growth is about becoming more independent, more powerful, more relevant, maybe a higher position of respect. But in order to follow Jesus and to know Jesus, we need to see that real growth is actually thinking less of ourselves and thinking more of Jesus and more of his love. Because the question is not how many people take you seriously. What can you accomplish? Show me results. The real question is, do you know Jesus? Do you love him and do you know how much he loves you? Does he define who you're willing to let in and how deeply you're willing to care for the people around you? And deeper than that, because I think for hardworking people, this is really the place the rubber meets the road. Does he define the things that you think of as your successes and your failures? So I have two questions for us tonight. Two questions. What does this story that we just read, this very long story that we just read, what does it reveal about Peter's heart? And um, by analogy, our hearts. And then what does it reveal about Jesus' heart? What does this reveal about Peter's heart? What does it reveal about Jesus' heart? So let's start here. What does this say about Peter's heart? Think about what's led up to Peter's experience up to this moment. On the night that Jesus betrayed, Peter looks in and he says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. He's got this image of himself where he's the one that he, where he's going to die for Jesus. And Jesus looks him square in the face and says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. And it happens exactly like that. Like, Jesus is arrested, and Peter will not admit to anyone that even knows Jesus. And as soon as the rooster finally does crow, Peter hears it, remembers what Jesus had to say, and is undone. He goes away weeping. His ideal image of himself has just been blown up by the reality of his actions. That he's not the one who dies for Jesus. Jesus is the one who dies for him. And you know, we could look at that and we could say, well, he didn't have the discipline to follow through here. He just wasn't brave enough. He wasn't focused enough. I mean, those are things we tell ourselves when we fail. Why not say the same things to Peter? Like, you had one job. Just admit that you knew him. You can't even do that. What kind of disciple are you? Right? I mean... It just raises all kinds of fears of failure, I think, for us. You know who this is really hard for? I think this is really hard for someone who's come to Carolina, and in high school, you were the kid for whom things just naturally came to. Like, you took all the APs, you did all the extracurriculars. Like, you did well, you had to work, but you did really, really well. And you graduated maybe top five or ten in your class, and you were kind of the golden child. You always succeeded until you got here and maybe... You know, you bombed a class, and you worked as hard as humanly possible, and you did the tutoring, and you studied as much as you could, and you still flunked. Or maybe it's not even that dramatic. Maybe you're here, and you're just struggling to be a middle-of-the-road student. Like, B's and C's, and like, we're working for those. Like, how do we typically deal with those things? How do we deal with the sense of, I'm not the person I thought I was, or like, I feel like I'm failing here. Just like what Peter's doing. What is he doing in the story? What does he do? He goes back to fishing. 
he buckles down and he works, right? For whatever reason, he does it. He knows that Jesus has been raised from the dead. At this point, he's seen him alive after the resurrection. And Peter has returned to being a fisherman. Like, what does that say about our tendency to deal with failure? Like, I've let myself and Jesus down, and so I need to go back to work. I need to take my embarrassment, I need to take my fear, and I need to bury it under work. Like, if I have disappointment in one part of my life, I'll shine in the other. If I do right there, I kind of balance the scales out. And we can do that through schoolwork, we can do that through ministry work. I've definitely done that. And you know what, though? Work is a great way to get things done. And we are here to do good work, and to do great work for God's kingdom. But it's a terrible metric for our worth as a person. It's just terrible at telling you who you are. Work is a great way to hit big goals, but it's a terrible way to make up for our past and mistakes that we make in our past. And ignoring things by working is just another form of control for people who know that they're not in control. But for people like us, people like me, who are good at working, who've grown up being judged by their work, who've lived by the work, been shaped by that work, and worked harder and harder, the most natural thing in the world is to handle our problems by covering them up and working harder. For many of us, most of our struggles to believe and follow Jesus really don't boil down as much to, like, is the Bible true or not? How do I know about this guy? But really, deep down, there's this fear in us of, is he really good enough to love me and provide for all of my needs apart from my work? I read an article recently about this college student in Utah who went to a weekend out with her parents on a, a lake with her family. And they were water skiing, and they were in a boat, and it was just really fun. But she broke out in all these hives, like all over her body. And it was so bad that she had to be hospitalized for this massive allergic reaction that she was having. Like she had hives everywhere. And nobody could figure out what it was, though. Like they tested the water for chemicals. They tested her for insect stings or some sort of bug bite somewhere. And they couldn't find anything. But it got even worse because while she was in the hospital, her family had had a hot tub installed at their house, which sounds pretty awesome. But when she got home, she got in the hot tub, and again, the same thing happens. Like these big, nasty hives all over her body, and she has to go back to the hospital. No one knows what's the problem. She comes back from the hospital, and it starts to happen when she takes a shower too. And finally, her doctors start to think, you know, maybe it's not a chemical So what they do is they take a rag and they soak it in pure distilled water. Like no chemicals, no minerals, just H2O. And they place the... That's the chemical formula for it. (laughs) Welcome to college. (laughs) And they place the rag on her arm and she breaks out in hives all over her arm where they put the rag. And that's when they realize this girl has become allergic to water. Yeah, like not anything in the water, but the water itself. And anytime she gets in water or around water, she breaks out in hives. Like when it rains, good thing she lives in Utah, but when it rains, (laughs) hives. She went on a trip, a work trip with her dad to Cambodia, and the humidity in Southeast Asia gave her hives. She wanted to live in Portland, Oregon. That was like her dream city. The hives said no. Right? And you hear a story like that and you wonder, how can somebody be allergic to something that makes up 75% of your body? Like, without water, you die. How can you be allergic to something that you can't live without? 
And in some ways, for some of us, we can feel like the thing that I need most is to be loved apart from what I can or I can't do. That someone would just know me and accept me and see me and not look at me or judge me, but just be with me. And even for people who've grown up in the church or hearing the gospel or singing songs about him, their reaction to Jesus and this whole concept of being loved apart from your works can feel like an allergy. Like, I want to be near him. I want to be sustained by him. But that whole God's undeserved love that tells you to run from your good works and run from your bad works and just come and receive his love for you, that can get under your skin and rub you raw. Like, I feel that too at times. Like, to be saved by faith is easy because all you have to do is believe in Jesus and say that, no, God, save me based on you, not me. And it is the hardest thing in the world because it takes the power of control out of our hands. Because at heart, the Christian faith is coming to God with empty hands and saying, you are God and I am not. Let me cling to you. And this is so hard for people like us. So if that's Peter's heart, then what's the cure? What's the cure to this? It's to see Jesus' heart. Just look at what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Jesus is coming to them as they're working and he's approaching them and he's still serving these guys. Like, they've all failed him. None of them stayed with him. Whether or not they've abandoned their call as disciples or they're just kind of killing time by fishing, all of these guys left Jesus when he most needed him. And he goes out to Peter and he invites him off the boat and he cooks breakfast for the man who refused to know him. Like, little known fact about dudes, guys only cook breakfast for guys that they really love. Like... (laughs) If, you, if I'm cooking you scrambled eggs in the morning, it's because I love you. <laughs> um, and then they have this really awkward conversation, right? Like, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. <laughs> right? You know, there are all kinds of things in your and I's life that we ignore because it feels weird or embarrassing to bring it up. Anybody who has a roommate knows this. But Jesus is too honest And loves Peter too much to just gloss over his failure. Like the reality is that Peter needs to be restored so that he can live with confidence and boldness. He's an apostle. He's an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, his death, his resurrection. Upon him and the guys around him, the whole of the Christian witness to Jesus' work is based. He has a hard road ahead of him. But Jesus knows that just as Peter denied him three times, he's got to ask him, do you love me? The Bible talks about people being tested, and that's a testing not to see, so that God can see what's inside of you, but so that you can see what's inside of you. Now, sometimes that's a situation where it's good or it's bad, where this kind of hidden strength or faith or courage kind of rises up to the top. Sometimes, though, it's just a question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? A great teacher a great coach, a great mentor, is not just going to show you things, isn't just going to tell you things about yourself. They will show you things about yourself. Jesus doesn't need to tell Peter, I know that you love me. He needs to ask Peter, do you love me, so that Peter can look inside of himself and look to the core of his being and see that, yeah, I do. He's testing him in the sense that he's exposing in Peter what might be hidden from Peter. 
that in spite of his failure, that he really does love Jesus. And Jesus wants Peter to see that love inside of himself. Because when he sees that love, he's healed. Because there's really two things here that are being revealed. This isn't just something about Peter's love being revealed, but more importantly, it's Jesus' love being revealed as well. Did you catch the start of this chapter right here? Where it says that Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. This is now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The word reveal here is huge through John's gospel. John the Baptist revealed Jesus to Israel. The way in Cana revealed Jesus' glory. The crucifixion reveals the Father's name. Reveal is scattered throughout this gospel. And this is a revelatory act. So what does it reveal here to us? Not just that Jesus is alive, but that he's alive pursuing people who fail. Jesus comes to us to reveal what God is really like. What does God think about the poor? What does God think about the Bible? What does God think about people who get rich, doing religious stuff but don't really care about the people they're serving? What is God like in our suffering? What is he like in our deepest, most rock bottom, I cannot deny anymore, I've done this thing and betrayed myself and you and God, like sin. What does he reveal about that? He reveals the heart of God. And this is so important for us because when you fail and you will fail, how do you think that God is going to treat you? Is the Jesus in your mind the kind of Jesus that's going to come looking for you and cook you breakfast and restore you? What would Jesus say of you right now? What would he do with you right now? At some point, all of us will have this deep sense of failure that comes when we feel like we're doing really well spiritually, and then we fall off the wagon. And that might have been on Franklin Street last night at Halloween. That might be just periodically throughout the semester with some secret sin or hookup. But we can try to hide that. And Jesus wants to sit with you and have an awkward conversation and deal with it. Because your fear and my fear is that this is going to destroy us. But God's promise to us is that it will heal you. Jesus loves you too much to gloss over your failure and your sin and act like it's not a big deal. And each one of us needs to be healed in the way that corresponds to our shame and our failure. I mean, think about his attitude towards Peter here. Like, here's a guy who's had every conceivable advantage. He hung out with Jesus. He saw Jesus do miracles. He was in, like, the inner, inner circle of Jesus' friends. The apostle of the apostles. And every advantage here. And he fails. And how does Jesus treat him? Because how he treats Peter here should give us a pretty good indicator of how he's going to treat us. How does he treat him? He loves him. He sits down with him and he shows him that he was never defined by his failure. He was always defined by God's love. And this is Peter learning that he cannot follow Jesus or lead some ministry for Jesus without knowing and resting in God's love for him apart from his work. Just as he is as a sinner. Do you know that if your faith is in him that that's you too? That if you believe in the one who was righteous and in our place took the punishment that the unrighteous deserve? That you will not only be cleansed of your unrighteousness in God's eyes, that he will give you a righteousness that is so good and so pure and so bulletproof that you can stand before the eyes of God and he would smile at you and cook you breakfast. And one day he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, think about how this shapes your view of what it looks like to grow as a Christian. 
Look at what Jesus tells Peter that's going to look like for him. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Y'all, real growth as a Christian is always becoming more dependent on, your, more de- dependent on Jesus and less dependent on yourself. Because we all start out in a place like Peter, in a place of independence. Lord, I will die for you. And maybe some of you will. Like, maybe some of you really will. But for the most of us, what this is going to look like is a thousand deaths over the course of your life. And you might, be di- you might die one day in a nursing home somewhere. But to get to that point, to really die to yourself and to live for Jesus, you need to marinate in the fact that God has already died for you. And this is why our worship every week in REF is centered on the grace and the truth of God. Because every week you and I come in here doubting that truth. And we want you to leave here believing that Jesus is more beautiful and more believable to you. That RUF is really just a group of people on campus coming together to look into the face of Jesus and to be transformed by God's love. That's only when we see Him as more beautiful than our work or our success and more powerful than our failures that we'll be able to let go of those things as, as our identity and cling to Him. And we want you to know that, not just up here in your head, but understand it in your heart, that you're loved without conditions or limits. Because being mature in Christ cannot simply be about having you know, well-informed opinions about burning issues, or knowing who to vote for and not to vote for, and then leading a bunch of stuff. But it has to be rooted in a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. That for all of our effort, for all of our ability to focus, to do good things in the world, nothing else has the power to free us and take us out of ourselves and to place us in Jesus like his love. Like what made Peter jump naked out of a boat? Seeing Jesus' love for him. That is, is who Jesus is and what Jesus is and not who we are and what we are that gives rest to our souls and leads us to love God and love our neighbor. And we can talk about a ton of applications here, y'all. And the preacher in me just wants to like drill down into this stuff and just get into it. But I think the thing that we most need to see is God's heart. Because the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the very things that we want to hide from ourselves and each other, what we hate most about ourselves or are most deeply ashamed about, those are the things that draw out God's love and compassion. That he doesn't leave us, doesn't love us because of who we are. But he loves us in spite of who we are. And that is true in our weakness and our brokenness and our sadness. That these things have so moved the heart of God that he left heaven to die for us. And in a room of size, I just always wonder who's here. Like how many of us surround ourselves with people but inside feel super lonely? How many of us are so busy because we're afraid that if we stopped and slowed down of what we would find inside? How many of us are addicted to something, whether that is alcohol or exercise? How many of us run back into bad relationships because we just want someone to desire us and to be with us? I mean, I don't know, but I'm just always curious when I stand up here and talk. I know that some of us feel like hypocrites. I feel that way too. I mean, I'm a pastor and I stand up here and I talk about things like God's grace and then I don't give grace to people. Or I talk about God's holiness and I'm not a very holy person. 
Do you know what Jesus does to heal those things? He loves us. That it is his love that transforms. It's his love that takes our failures and works them to our good. And that either he's going to deal with the reality of our sin and our failure in our lives, or it will just swallow us up. And so it's that love that has to change us. So I want to end with this. What do we do with this love? What do we do with it? Look at what Jesus asked Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. If you love him, then love his people. Like if we say that we love him, that we're defined by his work in, his lo- in our lives, that the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, flow out of our, that love for us, do you know what the measure of how well we get this is then? If we love one another. I don't know if you saw uh, this video or not, but the Ryder Cup happened like a month ago. And if, you don't, if you're not a golf person, that's fine. Uh, but it's this biannual golf tournament between the U.S. and European golf pros. And there was this video that went viral um, on Facebook. And it was this. It was this American guy standing outside the ropes of the Ryder Cup at one of the warm-up sessions between the Europeans and the Americans. And like any good American guy, he's at this sporting competition with another country and he's heckling the heck out of the Europeans while they're trying to like practice for their putting. And it's a warm-up, so it's a little bit of a looser atmosphere. And finally, one of the guys on the European side just totally gets fed up with this guy. And he says, you think you can do better than us? Then come over here and prove it. And they motion for the refs or whoever it is that's there, to let the guy cross the ropes and step onto the green and take a putt. And to sweeten the pot, one of the golf pros pulls out a $100 bill and just lays it right there next to the hole. And so this guy is in baggy jeans, a red sweatshirt. He's like 12 feet out. He takes a borrowed club. He lines up, and he just hits the perfect crisp ball. right into the hole and walks over there and just grabs the $100 bill and everybody goes nuts. People are hugging and high-fiving. Even the Europeans give him like a high-five for this. And somewhere I know, because God is good, there's an American flag unfurled and fireworks were exploding and a bald eagle was screaming and, you know, it was amazing. (laughs) It was a spectacle. (laughs) But do you know what this story is with Jesus? That this is God challenging us and saying with a big, warm, gracious grin on his face, you love me? Then come over here and prove it. Like, if you love me, then love these people. Like, not the people way out there on the other side of the world, but the people in this room. Like, love the person that you have a hard time having a conversation with. And take that person to lunch and sit down and have a conversation with them. Invite someone to RUF and love them by introducing them to these great people here. Like, we need people to do large group and socials. Like, those things are awesome, but this doesn't just happen. It looks like it does sometimes, but it doesn't. There's a lot of hard work that happens. If you want to serve, serve in this way and love these people. Or think about leadership for next year and doing a community group or a fresh group. But whatever you do... Love people. Care for the people in this room. And that won't win you God's favor, but it will show you how much you love God. And it will teach you how much God loves you. So that's my hope for us tonight. That's the hope of the gospel, I think. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, I pray that you be at work in us.
um, to teach us your love, to teach us your grace and your truth. Help us to love one another. Help us to serve one another. Help people to know who you are because the way they see us love each other in this room. And Lord, we know that we can only do that and really love each other if we see how much you love us first. So open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear and receive and understand the love of God for his people. In your name we pray. Amen.